Hey traders, welcome to the 58th episode of the Performante podcast. This one's going to be a good one. It has a pretty uh, cheeky title, we thought. The Cuban DeFi crisis, kind of like the Cuban Missile Crisis. This start of the, to- uh, the podcast is going over Mark Cuban. Didn't necessarily get rug pulled, but we'll talk about that a little bit more. We're going to get into Ethereum's Band-Aid, not so much an upgrade. We'll next get into the Mexican Peso getting their own stablecoin, which is very interesting. And then we're going to finally finish off the podcast talking more about Goldman Stacks to kind of get that institutional information in there. So thank you very much for tuning in, and I'll pass the first conversation on to Nathan. I appreciate you taking your time to listen. Just to jump right into it, we have some uh, news about Mark Cuban. He's a billionaire investor. You might recognize him from the Shark Tank. He's also the owner of the NBA team, the Dallas Mavericks. Kind of got his feet in everything. And recently, he's been diving into DeFi. He's joining the Degenerate Club. And uh, he wrote a very detailed blog that I think is still worth the read. Uh, basically detailing his favorite projects within the DeFi space, specifically giving shoutouts to both Polygonmatic as well as Aave as kind of his two ways to generate passive income. And he went into detail about how he provides liquidity for two pairs on QuickSwap. The first is Dai slash Titan. Um, and then the second was Titan slash Matic. And ultimately, uh, he did a really good job explaining how it works and ultimately the service that a liquidity provider provides for the platform and how it provides value and how it gets compensated. But maybe he drew too much attention to the project because basically the liquidity pool vanished and ultimately he kind of got rug pulled. And so it's pretty funny just to see that like he was like super bullish on DeFi. He's like, yo, check out this liquidity pool I'm providing. Check out the gains that I'm making. He said he made like 206% on his uh, initial principal, which is absolutely insane gains. It seems like he kind of got baited by the high APY and then he got rug pulled. And now he's like, yo, DeFi is cool, but it needs regulation though, which is pretty funny. It's kind of like if you were to put your hand in a fire and be like, that fire is too hot. I got burnt and I'm mad. And so it's kind of interesting to see that duality between at first being super bullish on DeFi, being like, yo, I'm making sick gains, 206%. I'm a liquidity provider. I'm with the culture. And then literally the same day that he posted the blog, he got rug pulled. He did say on Twitter that he got his money out before. I think he still did lose some money, but ultimately it looks like Cuban uh, suffered a pretty serious loss. And uh, it's pretty funny, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Cuban DeFi Crisis, all in all, it sucks to say, but it kind of is just bringing more spotlight into the potential that DeFi has when you're evaluating it as a financial instrument to generate passive income. Definitely. I think it's a really good kind of eye-opener for the people who are DeFi degens to some degree. We talk about it quite often, and there are some unbelievable opportunities, but understanding what what you're getting yourself into and kind of playing with money that is uh, less important, I guess you could say, than putting things in BTC or Ethereum or a very well-established project in your hardware wallet, where that's basically the best uh, security you can really have. So kind of playing with fire a little bit and to kind of jump on to what you were talking about, it does look like he actually got out at one point and then he got back in when the TLV started to actually rise back up. So. Um, He's definitely getting a a little bit of FOMO to some degree. You see these investors 
no matter where they are in terms of kind of status, I do feel like that as a human being, you're going to have that FOMO and he was really promoting it on the June 13th. So I think he's definitely learned a lesson, not exactly so much rug pull, um, where these liquidity pools are partially collateralized stable coins, which is kind of similar to how a fraction of reserve banking system works in kind of the legacy system or the traditional banking system that we currently have, the amount of money that is collateralized is far less than the actual liquidity pool. So if everyone takes out their, their uh, assets and their money, then there's not enough to go around. And that's basically what happened in short. So pretty interesting topic. Uh, DEXs and liquidity pools are increasing substantially. So I think this is a really good reminder to vet your projects and vet your assets that you are investing in. Definitely a good topic to kind of start off and it's been absolutely blowing up all over the crypto news. So. Definitely uh, something to keep an eye on, but I think that DeFi is still an unbelievable opportunity. Don't let this kind of steer you away from DeFi. Just be a little bit mindful when you are playing with these very new, unestablished platforms. Yeah, 100%. There's an inherent risk anytime you're getting involved with the speculative space, and especially such an experimental space like DeFi. There's going to be incidents that happen like this. And so whenever you're operating within a space where there's an inherent asset risk, I think at the end of the day, the best offense is a great defense. You always want to be cautiously optimistic and really manage your risk on both like a fundamental scale where you're doing your due diligence. You understand the dynamics of what you're doing and how you get paid, but also in the larger sense of portfolio allocation. You never want to put all your eggs in one basket in any kind of investing, whether it's stocks, it's crypto. We don't talk about bonds. Let's just ignore that. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, you always want to kind of operate as if you could get rug pulled at any time because this Titan token went from $64 to less than a penny. And it's just a harsh reminder that crypto is the wild west. Anything can happen. We'll see if stablecoin regulation does happen. There's been a lot of uh, tether FUD recently. There was a high-profile YouTuber that did a very long investigation into the stablecoin. And so as crypto matures, obviously, we are going to see a higher level of regulation. But when you're kind of looking at it from the regulator's perspective, it's like, where the fuck do they even start? <laughs> yeah, honestly. It, like, what, what can they do to try and regulate a shitcoin called Iron, Iron Token on QuickSwap? Like... It's such a novel space that the mechanisms of regulation are so unclear that it, you just kind of have to watch and laugh as this kind of as the stuff happens in real life. And so to transition to the next story, we have an interesting update coming out of the Ethereum ecosystem. This one is called EIP 1559. A little bit of it sounds kind of like Elon's kid's name, to be honest. <laughs> And so this is what is known as the Ethereum Improvement Proposal. And basically, it's a quick change to the blockchain's code that must be agreed upon by the community members before it's adopted. It goes through a series of vetting stages where essentially it'll go to the Robston test network and then the Gorley test network, followed by the Rinkeby test network, basically just ensuring that it's ready for live launch. There's speculation that it could happen as early as late July. And what this is interesting because this network upgrade is going to change the way miners are compensated, which is interesting for two reasons. One, it's going to try and solve the speed and cost duality when you're using decentralized apps like Uniswap. 
because as everyone knows, sometimes you have to pay insane fees during high market volatility. Like I remember one time I was trying to buy a shit coin called Saki Von's Cock, SCC. And uh, the fee to buy it, I think, was like $410. And I was like, okay, so if I got to pay $410 to buy and $410 to sell, I am not going to do this. And so that's what this is trying to solve, that speed and price duality. But the implication of this is interesting because Ethereum is actively trying to transition away from a proof of work protocol towards a proof of stake protocol. And everyone's hyped about Ethereum 2.0 and that transition towards proof of stake, more sustainable network maintenance. And obviously there's a lot of benefits when looking at it from both the environmental and the practical side of things. But this EIP 1559 update that's happening before the next Ethereum 2.0 update is kind of like putting a Band-Aid on the current network. They're not proceeding with Ethereum 2.0. They're basically taking a step back. And they're like, before we proceed with 2.0, and proof of stake, let us quickly refine our proof of work protocol, <laughs> dedicate our time to that. It's kind of like they're going in two separate directions simultaneously. Obviously, there is a very high value to kind of refining the Ethereum network and providing a more concise service, but it's very controversial that they're upgrading their proof of work system while actively trying to transition to a proof of stake. I'm not really sure what to think about it. It's kind of contrasting to their overall trajectory, but ultimately Ethereum's just going to keep on updating. The man, the myth, the legend, Vitalik, he's, he's never short of good ideas. He's always got something interesting cooking up, and we are seeing that kind of transition towards Ethereum being a more user-friendly and transactional-friendly uh, cryptocurrency project. Yeah, well said. I think our assumption that ETH 2.0 will not be ready before the completion of this bull run is coming into fruition, where we've been kind of harping that the Binance Smart Chain, the BSC, um, if you're looking at DEXs and, and looking at alternatives to kind of reduce the amount of cost it is to actually transact, basically fees, that would be your first place you should be, you should be looking to transact in shitcoins because it costs pennies to actually buy shitcoins on the Binance Smart Chain. So until E2.0 comes, I think that will be kind of the same focus um, for us at least, hopefully probably for a lot of people in the market as well. So moving on to the next topic here, kind of following uh, the discussion we had with El Salvador, with countries that are implementing cryptocurrencies or, or blockchain within their economy or within their networks, we see Mexico, which is kind of surprising. They presented their first cryptocurrency linked to the Mexican peso. So basically another stablecoin. But this is quite interesting because a lot of stablecoins, if not all of them, I don't know if every single one is, but... The majority of stable coins are all back to the US dollar, which makes sense. It's the world reserve currency, Bitcoin, and, and every single crypto basically is measured in US dollars along with basically every global asset looking at commodities, looking at stocks. So this is, in my opinion, the first major step for not just the US dollar to have a stable coin, which there's already a plethora of, but we're going to have all these different currencies that are being used already have their own stable coins so it is going to create more diversity you don't have to let's say if you're in a stable coin to stable coin liquidity pool if you're um, just staking you don't really need to just hold the united states dollars now people are able to kind of select which uh not shit uh 
fiat currency, but I was going to try to combine shitcoin with fiat currency because it kind of inevitably is going to be going down. But I think this is really going to open up a lot of pathways for not just countries, but individual people to reduce the friction for remittance and have the ability for uh, less developed countries to enter the new age of blockchain. Because as you can see, uh, let's just take a quick look here. Moneta or Moneta, I believe is how you say it. The digital platform in Mexico will be uh, be able to purchase Mexican peso stable coins, which is a ticker symbol MMXN on June 17th. And it's actually supported by the Mexican currency, by the Mexican government. So we're seeing a collaboration of private and government sectors incorporating efforts in order to create the stablecoin, which I think we'll see more of for the different countries like El Salvador, Venezuela. Uh, there's Turkey's a, a big one that they've uh, kind of uh, talked a lot about. Iraq's another uh, interesting country that we've talked about incorporating blockchain. So yeah, Mexican peso is going to have their own stablecoin. Pretty interesting. Yeah, 100%. It's insane to see these uh, South American and Latin American countries adopt crypto at such an accelerating rate. Obviously, everyone's heard about El Salvador. It seems like Uruguay could be up next. We're seeing really just basically adoption of Bitcoin at that multinational level, which is in tune with the hyper-Bitcoinization trend we've been seeing basically for the last 12 months, let's say really started off with the institutional push towards the tail end of 2020. And now we are seeing the multinational push uh, towards usage of Bitcoin on the international scale. And we are seeing really intuitive ideas, like for example, in El Salvador, they want to leverage the volcanic energy into clean Bitcoin mining to basically turn magma into Bitcoins. Pretty creative. It's crazy. Yeah, and we're seeing uh, alternative solutions like no capital gains tax on Bitcoin in El Salvador because it's no longer considered a speculative asset and it's considered a, a sovereign currency. So we're definitely seeing some countries become a lot more receptive to cryptocurrencies within the scheme of their own financial systems, because I think we're really starting to experience the effects of the US dollar inflating, not necessarily domestically, like obviously commodity prices have gone absolutely bonkers, but we're seeing kind of the squeeze on a much more larger international scale, because the way it works. U.S. dollars get printed and they usually get added to the domestic U.S. market. Obviously, U.S. does a lot of international business. And so when the U.S. goes to underprivileged countries like El Salvador with more buying power because they physically have more U.S. dollar, things in El Salvador become more expensive when measured in U.S. dollar. And it's not like the people in El Salvador are getting some USD fresh off the printer, fresh out of J Powell's back pocket. <laughs> they have to fight tooth and dime to try and get those US dollars. And ultimately, they're kind of getting left in the dust because they don't have the means to increase their income. But in effect, everything's becoming more expensive because they have a debased international currency that they can't keep up with. And so I think we're really seeing an equalization of international currencies when we see these smaller countries adopting Bitcoin as their sovereign tender. Well said. I think the dominoes are going to continue falling for uh, many countries that we're talking about. I completely agree. And then kind of shifting from countries to huge conglomerates, huge corporations. The next couple of things we're going to talk about is Goldman Sachs. Uh, the first thing is that Goldman Sachs actually became the first U.S. bank to trade Bitcoin futures, which is a pretty monumental step. 
they've become the first United States American bank to trade in the Bitcoin futures after entering the market in partnership with good old Mr. Novogratz, Mike Novogratz, which is uh, the kind of head of Galaxy Digital. Uh, it also marks the first time Goldman Sachs would actually use digital, digital assets as a counterparty since the investment bank set up its cryptocurrency desk last month. So we do see uh, kind of the talking heads of Wall Street go against Bitcoin, Jamie, Di Jamie Dimon's flip-flopping back and forth. But when you actually take a look at the actions of the institutions, you see they're only progressing and only pushing forward to adopt this innovative technology and disruptive technology because they know that uh, they're kind of their asses on, are on the line to some degree. If you're looking in the world of crypto, it can basically completely uh, replace a lot of the legacy systems that we have as of right now for money exchange and, and just being able to verify individuals to see how much money they have. And, and, and just a decentralized ledger is, is basically what banks are right now. It's not like there's a, a person sending money from one bank to another. It's all digital. So I think they understand that and it's either adapt or die. So they are incorporating BTC futures in their trading desks. And I think this will kind of legitimize BTC from a speculative asset into something that is less volatile, similar to kind of a lot of new innovative technologies. They get very volatile at the start, but as time goes on, as the market cap increases, the overall volatility decreases, but the overall uh, price appreciation, I guess you could say, decreases as well because it's harder to hit those uh, massive appreciation booms when you already have a very large market cap. There's less people that are able to enter. But once you start to see these institutions, I think that's why 2021 is going to be a monumental bull run because we are starting to finally see institutions come into the space, not just poking around and looking, but actually creating entire sections of their uh, of their organization dedicated to blockchain and really cryptocurrency trading and investing. Yeah, like this is just a further adoption of the technology, not necessarily in the true technological use case, but in the sense of it as a financial instrument. Goldman Sachs actually seems to be kind of leading the way in terms of like the big banking identity, really leveraging this opportunity. We obviously just talked about uh, the Bitcoin futures, but they will also be offering some Ethereum options. Uh, there's no time or date set, but it looks like this could be happening in 2021 to offer a new derivative park, new derivative market for the Ethereum cryptocurrency. And it's also interesting to note that in May, I didn't know this, that Goldman started offering investors NDFs which is a non-deliverable forward. It's a derivative tied to the Bitcoin price that pays out in cash. I didn't know they were doing that. That's a pretty interesting product to kind of be offering on the institutional side of things. And I mean, they wouldn't be making these investment and financial products if there wasn't some level of demand. It's hard to speculate how much demand there is, but ultimately banks follow money. And if suddenly they're coming up with a full suite of investment products to suit both their retail and institutional customers, clearly they must both speculate on an increasing demand and see some all some high level of demand already. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. Banks are lazy as shit. Why don't they <laughs> offer offer products that aren't going to be used? Like we have to realize that the cucks at Goldman are probably the most greedy people on planet Earth, and so they're going to create products that they 
think that their customers will use and they can charge a pretty penny for access for because otherwise they wouldn't do it. At the end of the day, these banks are very selfish in the way that they operate. They follow the money and they're operating on the consensus that in the gold rush, it was not the miners that made the money. It was the people standing at the entrance to the mine selling shovels, coffee, tea, food, etc. Those are the people that truly profit off massive market mania, like we're seeing with this insane crypto growth from the institutional and international level. Yeah, well said. I think the one quote, that's a good takeaway. Banks follow money. Look at what their actions are. Look at what they're doing, not what they're saying. They're going to be flip-flopping back and forth, um, maybe even to buy the dip. We don't exactly know, but uh, kind of looks like some of the kind of bad actors that we talked about recently are doing that, where you see not with Goldman Sachs, but with JP Morgan, Jamie Dimon bashing Bitcoin and then saying that uh, it's a good investment or having investment uh, portfolios strictly for cryptocurrencies in the JP Morgan portfolio, stuff like that, just follow the actions, don't follow the news headlines is, is a really good way to go about um, kind of understanding what the institutions are doing, in my opinion. So it's a really good way to end off the podcast. I'm going to hand it over on to Nathan to uh, wrap it all up here. It is June 18th. We're recording this episode at 6.32 p.m. PST. I appreciate the time you've taken to tune in. If you haven't already, we recommend joining our Discord, following our TikTok or Instagram. We try and provide as much value and insight as we can to keep you guys in touch with the markets, with how we see it. Obviously, we are at the beginning of a financial revolution. And believe me when I say the best is yet to come. Take care, everyone.